All those who are holding tickets outside will get in as fast as they can. I'm speaking not to you, ladies and gentlemen, but I'm speaking to the crowd on the outside who seem to be standing rather reluctant to come in, and we're going to start this very soon. Movies should be a positive expression that there is hope, love, mercy, justice, and charity. It is the filmmaker's responsibility to emphasize the positive qualities of humanity by showing the triumph of the individual over adversities. That was from Frank Capra in 1960. And we're starting off today's episode of Worthy because it's about really about Frank Capra and all of his themes and it's all about his experiences in life and everything that, that he would take from those experiences and put into his movies to create this ideal world, this Capra world of America and of society itself. And so that's where we begin this episode of Worthy, where we talk about this director, this icon of an era, specifically of the 1930s. Uh, so, John, I think to start out, when you hear that, those words from Capra, what jumps out to you about the responsibility of a filmmaker? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question because not only is he saying that they have a certain responsibility, he's also directly expressing what a movie should be. Now, I think this is coming from obviously a filmmaker who's been so prominent in the 30s, and this is later on, um, later on in his life in 1960. So he's had a lot of experience in the film industry, and I think from his entire catalog at this point, you can kind of see some patterns throughout his like sincere nature with battling. Um, with rich versus the poor, which is common uh, themes throughout his film. And I think narrowing down the question whether films should be positive expression, that there is hope, love, mercy, justice, and charity. I think at this point in time, we're coming closer and closer to like 100 years of the Academy Awards and uh, over 100 years now as like an art form. I think that's just not the case anymore. I think there's a lot of films that go way beyond just expressing hope, love, mercy, justice, and charity. And that, that doesn't mean that those are bad films or those... Um, or better films because they go beyond that. I just think filmmaking now is so big and broad that there's so many ways to express characters and to express stories that you can have like a really dark film. And when I read that quote, I was like thinking like, okay, a lot of films are involving hope, mercy. Like these are very common themes or just kind of messages you see in film. But I was like, "Hmm, let me think about another director. And I was like, what's a director that's like the opposite of that? Like a director that is just so not about those specific themes. And I just kept thinking of Casper No. Or Gaspar No, who's a, a European director who's known for his very like visceral, kind of violent, intense filmmaking. Um, films like Love, which was like a 3D erotic film. Um, and what he's most, most famous for originally was Irreversible, which is like a film told backwards in time, um, which is essentially all about a woman being raped. So it's insanely dark and very disturbing. And none of his films are really about hope, love, mercy, justice, or charity. In fact, they're kind of about the opposite, the the dark underbelly of like the world and the real cruelness of nature and the world. So I think we need kind of films like that. I'm not saying that's necessary. That's not even like my favorite kind of film or director, but I think it's kind of necessary. So I'll, I'll turn the question back on you, Ben. Do you think movies should be positive expression and there should be hope, love, mercy, justice, and charity in films? No. And actually the, it's funny that, um, that you are focusing on that part of the quote, because to me, the real thing that he tries to emphasize in a lot of his films and a lot of movies moving forward, especially best picture winners from the sixties, the seventies, and, and from going on from the, from those points in that era 
is he says uh, to emphasize the positive qualities of humanity by showing the triumph of the individual over adversities, which is where we are today in society. So yeah, like we don't need to have hope, love, mercy, justice, and charity in every film, which is like a Capra theme, but it's the idea of coming over adversity through hope, through love and, and justice and charity. And, and yeah, it doesn't have to be like this extremely positive experience. Like I don't need to feel love 24 seven within the world of the film, but the idea of overcoming adversity coming back from something from a low point, from a, from a dark point in your life uh, to show the triumph of the individual, I think is something that Capra knew he could do in filmmaking. And I don't know if filmmaking was at that point yet. I don't know if, if directors or Oscar contenders or, or best picture winners really show that in the 1930s, but they did do that eventually. And, and I think that speaks to Capra and the, and what he was able to build and this just huge pantheon of filmmakers, like the pillar that he has is kind of holds up the whole foundation. There are a few directors who else who do that as well, but I feel like Capra left a huge, huge, huge mark. And I say that because he, this movie we're, we're going to be talking about today, you can't take it with you is his second best picture winner. And it's the third time that he won best director. He's the first director to do that. And not many directors do that, have done that since. Like even the fact like of recent memory, like Alejandro Nuritu or, or, or Ang Lee, like the, them winning two Oscars is like, whoa, like Alfonso Cuaron, like, like, whoa, they won two. And the fact that he won three in a six year period is pretty remarkable. Uh, to to leave behind as a legacy. So, uh, like to you, John, like when you hear Capra, like what what's an immediate thing that jumps to your head? Like what's that Capra esque quality that speaks to you at first? Well, we've now seen it happen one night. I've seen Mister Deed goes to town. You can't take it with you. Obviously, it's a wonderful life. That's a classic that I actually watched later in my life compared to most. But I usually think of immediately. It's like earnest, being earnest, and just having like a kind of honesty and a passion for not only like a wish fulfillment, but also just this kind of like passion to be good or like to find an inner good essentially. And he's just got this like earnesty to his films and probably to his like heart. And, and of course like the the screenplays where these characters are established, but he's just a very kind of like honest filmmaker that likes to mainly be positive, but also kind of show the dark, like underside a little bit of the the kind of opposing forces that are throughout his films. And he obviously leans a lot into like the rich poor dynamic. I think that carries a lot throughout his films. Uh, It happened one night is that kind of back and forth between this uh, kind of middle-class reporter versus this really up uppity rich uh, woman that he meets. And then Mr. Deed goes to town is about um, a kind of lower class man coming into this fortune. Um, which is then Raimi as Mr. Deeds, as we all know. Yeah. And then You Can't Take It With You, which is our film this week. And it's, again, all about rich versus poor. You know, a family coming in and and seeing this uh, lower-class family and kind of judging them and, and whether picking whether they're right for uh, the son, the Kirby son. Yeah, those three films in particular, I think, kind of define his style, his themes about being uh, kind of comparing the rich versus the poor and showing the bad qualities of of both essentially and then also showing the good qualities and then kind of bringing those two people together and showing how like kumbaya we can be all one but while kind of wearing his heart in his sleeve and that just 
it makes it more powerful the way he's just kind of so honest and earnest about his characters and the worlds that he builds. Yeah, and I don't think that's an accident. I and there is uh there is like behind the scenes aspects where Capra like his values on screen may not be exactly his values in life and a lot of it could be attributed to his screenwriting partner Robert Riskin. But Capra did come from this uh this immigrant background so he's a, his his family's originally from Sicily. Uh, and then they moved and they immigrated to America in 1903. So he was only like six years old uh, around the time. And that really hardened him. He also fought in World War One. His father died in World War One. He went through this whole period and up until essentially he was like 24 where he was not able to work, where he was not able to really do stuff for himself, even though he actually did have a college education out of the rest of his family. And even the rest of his family is working. He wasn't working. And that that messed with him, it seemed like. And he eventually then was able to hop on with Harry Cohn, who founded Columbia Pictures, or or at least was ahead a of a Columbia Pictures, and they created this beautiful friendship and and of a professional work and and a filmmaking that it that was so successful for a decade and is still lasting. Again, like me, almost a hundred years later, Capra films are a cornerstone of a filmmaking of of film history of approaching cinema in, in so many different ways and. It just it, it we need to kind of give Capra his due, even though he's gotten his due, three Academy Awards, two Best Picture winners. Like he he's gotten his due, but it, it's about it, accepting and and realizing and 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 seeing how his world was really brought to life. How this Italian immigrant who came from literally nothing became something of himself and created so much for the world of cinema. It's it's almost indisputable to argue against that it's it's ridiculous at, at times to deny what capper can do i mean it, it's it's really powerful and it's really moving and you see that in especially in you can't take it with you with the coming up togetherness with these like um these american themes and like i know like in in 2021 we're in a very 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 divided world but capper's ideas are to bring people together despite background despite differences despite hate despite uh poor rich black white asian it does not matter you are part of this american family and it's not yeah it's the america of 1930s but it's still this italian immigrants idea that he's putting into these films and and what he's creating uh that that drives it home and and that's what makes it so successful in most if not all of his films and i want to read just one more quote from the la times by jack matthews and michael wilmington from 1991, right after Capra passed away. Capra-esque or Capricorn, the terms express the unique tone of a Capra movie, the mix of idealism and cynicism that both draws our affection and force us to keep a distance. They are dreams. They are impossibilities. They are pure, unvarnished, wish fulfillment. And though the timing may not always be right for them, their themes are certainly timeless. So I wanted to kind of end our little discussion here to start off the episode with Capra by just kind of reading that quote because I think it really summarizes what makes him so special and what makes his films so special and what has kind of kept them in the hearts of American films and uh, Americans even till this day where we still watch um, you know It's a Wonderful Life and um, it's still just so prominent how much he's inspired American film and how much he's changed just really film and uh, a lot of these genres entirely. So that leads us to the one and only question, Benjamin, 
is You Can't Take It With You, worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1938. You can't take it with you. A man from a family of rich snobs becomes engaged to a woman from a good-natured but decidedly eccentric family. A successful banker, Anthony P. Kirby, has just returned from Washington, D.C., where he was effectively granted a government-sanctioned munitions monopoly, which will make him very rich. He tends to buy a 12-block radius around a competitor's factory to put him out of business, but there is one house that is a holdout to selling. Kirby instructs his real estate broker, John Blakely, to offer a huge sum for the house, and if that is not accepted, to cause trouble for the family. Meanwhile, Grandpa Vanderhoff convinces a banker named Poppins to pursue his dreams of making animated toys. Kirby's son, Tony, a vice president in the family's company, has fallen in love with a company stenographer, Alice Sycamore. When Tony proposes marriage, Alice is worried that her family would be looked upon poorly by Tony's rich and famous family. In fact, Alice is only relatively normal member of the eccentric Sycamore family led by Vanderhoff. Unbeknownst to the players, Alice's family lives in the house that will not sell. Kirby and his wife strongly disapprove of Tony's choice for marriage. Before she accepts, Alice forces Tony to bring his family to become better acquainted with their future in-laws. But when Tony purposely brings his family on the wrong day, the Sycamore family is caught off guard and the house is in disarray. As the Kirbys are preparing to leave after a rather disastrous meeting, the police arrive in response to what they perceive as printed threats on flyers by Grandpa's son-in-law, Ed. When the fireworks in the basement go off, they arrest everyone in the house. Held up in the drunk tank preparing to see the night court judge, Mrs. Kirby repeatedly insults Alice and makes her feel unworthy of her son, while Grandpa explains to Kirby the importance of having friends and that despite all the wealth and success in business, you can't take it with you. At the court hearing, the judge allows for Grandpa and his family to settle the charges for disturbing the peace and making illegal fireworks by assessing a fine, which Grandpa's neighborhood friends pitch and pay for. He repeatedly asks why the Kirbys were at the Vanderhoff house. When Grandpa, attempting to help Kirby, says it was a talk over selling the house, Alice has an outburst and says it was because she was engaged to Tony, but is spurning him because of how poorly she has been treated by his family. This causes a sensation in the papers, and Alice flees the city. With Alice gone, Grandpa decides to sell the house, thus meaning the whole section of the town must vacate in preparation for building a new factory. Now the Kirby companies merge, creating a huge fluctuation in the stock market. When Kirby's competitor Ramsey dies after confronting him for being ruthless and a failure of a man, Kirby has a realization he is heading for the same fate and decides to leave the meeting where the signing of the contract is to take place. As the Vanderhoffs are moving out of the house, Tony tries to track down Alice. Kirby arrives and talks privately with Grandpa, sharing his realization. Grandpa responds by inviting him to play Polly Wally Doodle on the harmonica that he gave him. The two let loose with the rest of the family joining in the merriment, and with Alice taking Tony back. Later at the dinner table, Grandpa says grace for the Sycamore family and the Kirbys, revealing that Kirby has sold back the houses on the block. You Can't Take It With You starred Lionel Barrymore as Martin Vanderhoff, Jean Arthur as Alice Sycamore, James Stewart as Tony Kirby, Edward Arnold as Anthony P. Kirby, Spring Byington as Penny Sycamore, Samuel S. Hines as Paul Sycamore, Ann Miller as Essie Carmichael, Dub Taylor as Ed Carmichael, Misha Orr as Boris Kolenkov, Lillian Yarbo as Reba, Eddie Anderson, aka Eddie Rochester Anderson as Donald, Donald Meek as Poppins, Hollywell Hobbs as Mr. Depina, 
and Mary Forbes as Miriam Kirby. You Can't Take It With You was directed by Frank Capra. Written by Robert Riskin, based on the play by George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart. Produced by Frank Capra. Cinematography by Joseph Walker. Film editing by Gene Havlick. And art direction by Stephen Gusson. So we introduced so many characters and and actors and actresses at the beginning uh, because there's a huge cast. There's a huge world that that you can't take it with you, builds upon it and showcases. And uh, so first, John, my first question to you is, who is your favorite character out of the 20-something odd number of cast members? I have to go with Martin Vandernhoff just because I love Lionel Barrymore's portrayal of this character. We've seen... Uh, this by Barrymore in particular already, but there's something magical about his performance, like his like really soft, sweet, and just kind of like gentle man that he is throughout the entire film. And I, from the very opening scene where he like meets Poppins and kind of breaks him away from his job as a, an accountant, basically just counting numbers all day, I was like, there's something special to this character. Like he's immediately kind of setting up the world for us and defining who this family is because he's like presenting all these these kind of values that they represent and, and that they explore throughout the film. So he has to be my favorite. What about you? Yeah, uh, I, I love Martin Vanderhoff. It, it reminds me of so much of, of my own grandparents, and there's just this really... Damn, you got awesome grandparents. Jeez. Yeah, my <laughs> my grandma listens to this. So, Nanny, thank you for listening to Worthy, <laughs> and I know you hate when I say fuck, but fuck it. <laughs> yeah, all my grandparents are sadly no longer with us. Yeah. So. Well, na- Nanny loves us, and she loves you. So and <laughs> Thank you, Nanny, for listening. We appreciate it. <laughs> we appreciate it, Nanny. But my favorite character um, is not one of the main people, and I'm just... Just because I loved every line, it was uh, Boris Kalenkov's, uh, played by Misha R. He was uh, Essie's dance teacher. He's from Russia. There's like so many different things that we can dive deep into in a little bit. But I just wanted to know like what your favorite person was and, and, and in the film because there's just so much to break down. There's a lot that Capra gives us. And that kind of speaks back to like what we were saying at the beginning, that there's this whole idea of bringing people together, of, of Capra's America, of of the way that his films speak to uh, the, the dichotomies of the world and how to bring those things together. And that's what's kind of showcased or really is what's showcased. And, uh, and you can't take it with you. Uh, so is there a particular scene that Grandpa was a part of or just like a scene that sticks out to you as like, that's like the scene I really want to talk about like right now? Well, I spoke about the first scene with Poppins just because I think that sets up his character really well. I mean, Poppins is just this kind of lonely accountant who who does his work very passionately, but he's clearly just not interested. And the grandpa basically goes up to him and it kind of defines his characteristics. And he's basically like, why do you do this? And he's just like, because I have to, like, this is my job, like, this is what I'm supposed to do. And he's like, no, but do you enjoy this? Like, why are you doing this? And he's just like, of course, I hate this. This sucks. Like, I definitely don't want to be doing this. And he basically breaks him down and he's just like, well, what do you want to do? And he takes out this cute little rabbit in a bag. It's a toy rabbit that kind of like pops its head out and spins its head. And he's like, oh, you're like, you're a toy maker. And he's like, yeah, like, I want to do this. And this is what I like want to focus on. So he eventually like kind of brings Poppins back and he becomes essentially a part of their family, which I think also is a, a really important, significant moment that shows like what this family is about and how there's no really borders on their walls. It's just anyone's welcome to come in and be a part of the family. So that really established, I think, their entire family, Grandpa and Poppins as a character. And I think that was like such a great introduction for the Grandpa character. First off, the You Can't Take It With You is based upon a upon a play. Uh, we'll touch upon that in a second. But Poppins' character is just not uh, not in the play at all. He it's non-existent. This is a character only for the movie, and 
for me, that was like, oh, so Poppins is kind of a representation of the audience. Like we are jumping right into this. Like we're, and even the way that it's even shot too. So the way that uh, the opening of the whole movie starts, it's very fast paced. There's a lot of quick cuts. There's a lot of different shots than what you would normally see in the rest of this film and like other Capra films. So it's like really unique and, and really technical based. And then they do this like really interesting uh, like rack focus of all the accountants and it gets right onto Poppins. And then that's where we kind of enter the style of Capra where it's like these like medium shots that are, or that are wide uh, and that fills the screen. And that's when we get into like Vanderhoff's character, this like uh, this person who, who wants to bring people together, that wants to give them this freedom, that wants to really give them the opportunity to become something that they wouldn't be able to do like Poppins as a toy maker, but he's stuck in this world as an accountant. So it's really interesting, and it, and, it, and it really does set up the Vanderhoff Sycamore family pretty well. But the one thing that really jumped out to me was Poppins could have easily have been abducted if uh, if he this was a someone else. Like it's pretty like out there. He's like, oh yeah, I'll just join you guys. I'll just come on a whim. Uh, so I was thinking like, man, if this was like a twisted kind of movie, this could have went a totally <laughs> different way. <laughs> Yeah, I could totally see it like that. It's just so it's done in such a sweet, endearing way, and it's I love those characters in films where they kind of like question your morality or like they're like, why are you doing the life or why are you living the life you live? Why are you doing the things that you do? And it makes characters be like, wow, shit, I haven't asked myself yeah. that question actually. So, which is really interesting. I think in life we've all had people that kind of do that and like push us in a certain way, and then it kind of like sets us back and. It's a Capra question. Yeah, no, definitely. He, yeah. I mean, it's kind of what the whole emphasis of uh, it, It's a Wonderful Life is, is that um, I'm blanking on the main character's name right now. Uh, I don't know if you remember John off the top of your head. But anyways, but James Stewart's character, his whole the whole thing is like, I don't want to work at this family bank. I want to be, become an architect. I want to do something with my life. And it's, but that's like kind of this Capra question of like, what do you want to do with your life? And do you really have to do what society tells you to do to fit in to be quote unquote normal? Yeah, definitely. And I think we can see the the progression of his films and from like in Happen One Night, like we spoke about, and Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Then till this, he it's like he loves, or this could even be his writer, Robert Riskin, that he works with so closely. It, they just kind of love to explore the main characters, but they love like teasing at the world. And it just, it expands more and more throughout these, these three specific films where in Happen One Night, you have the couple and it's mainly about them, but he like loves putting them on this bus and like exploring the people on the bus, exploring the towns that they stop in. Like he's just like really in love with like showing and depicting the area it kind of establish the setting and the world that you're in. And then Mr. Deeds goes to town is also really similar to you can't take it with you or kind of builds into the, uh, obviously Mr. Deeds is the lead performance, but then it builds into the rest of the town as they kind of blow up and it becomes this big kind of court drama in the last like 30 minutes. Yeah. So it's clear that he wants to like, talk not just about single individuals but talk larger and about groups and about maybe just america in general and how he depicts it or how he wishes this is what america was essentially yeah and and i think you know mentioning like it happened one night in mr deeds because it, it really emphasizes like how he was growing how, Ca how capra learned how to world build um i guess more efficiently or just maybe the way he wanted to because yeah because it happened one night is it's like a microcosm of the world that Capra wants to show off. And I think that the biggest way it's shown is in the, um, in the scene on the bus when they're singing the man on the flying trapeze. And like, that's kind of like the biggest aspect it gets to. And then Mr. Deeds, it, it, it does get a little bit bigger, but the biggest point is that last courtroom scene, which 
uh, which adds like all of Mr. Deeds like neighbors and other people from the town. So you get that kind of world, but then this, and you can't take it with you really expands upon it and really shows off this huge Capra esque world that is full of his ideas and, and his themes and, and, and what he's trying to talk to you and, and represent to. Um, so it's, uh, it's good. It's, it, he finally, find, I guess you could say he found that groove, but he finds a way to really expand upon it in, in this movie specifically that he wasn't doing in the previous, uh, two best director wins that he got. Yeah, he definitely expands and, and opens it way further. And I think that's the most interesting part of the movie for me is about like the world he builds and how he can juggle all these characters while still like defining the story. And it's really interesting because the story in this movie is like really simple. It's like a guy's parents come to dinner, basically. It's like it can be like reduced down to that little. And there's obviously way more. And it's about like him buying all the properties so they could basically build a monopoly, essentially. And and it's it's just kind of can be reduced down even probably into like a short film but the way he wants to like focus on all the families he wants you to introduce and meet all these different members show the other side of it show the business side of Kirby and his life and you can get that feeling from the very beginning where it's like so rapid pace like I watched the beginning twice because I was like there's so many characters there's so much going on where I'm like okay, who are the characters I'm like supposed to actually follow? And it's like, oh no, you're supposed to follow all of these characters. <laughs> yeah. Like they're all important to like define the family or define the relationship. But in that specific kind of plot is where I think the film has like, it's some of its only faults where it's the relationship between Tony Kirby, which is the kind of fun loving side of the family that owns the house played by James Stewart, iconic James Stewart. And then you have who he's trying to essentially marry and get the approval of from his father, which is Gene Author playing Alice Sycamore. So there is like a really cute dynamic between the two. And I think they really kind of work back and forth, but I don't think they ever really like define that relationship enough. And they don't really like earn the final ending. Like as, as the families come together, I think that's kind of earned with this Kumbaya singing in this very Capra-esque way. I just don't think the relationship. And especially when we talk about the ending, when we'll get there, it's just not fully developed for me. So did, were there any like weak moments for you in the film? I think the weak moments for me are, and and this is a criticism that we've brought up a few times, is that when you adapt something from a stage play, it can be very hard to to take a lot out to adapt it and then make it digestible for the screen. And some of the best things that Capra does in this film is that there are a lot of long takes. You know, you really let the actors just go. You you know you let them do all these lines. You let them act and just really really showcase themselves. But it can make a very unappealing visual experience. I mean, yeah, we, me and you, John, are from this like very new age of filmmaking where it's like so many different things, so much action, so that just comes at you in the films that we watch today, that most people watch today, really, that wasn't accessible or wasn't really a thing in, in 1938 when this came out. Um, so I guess like that's the downfall of the film is that, yeah, it's based off of a play and, and it has those same play qualities and the pacing can be a little slow, but if you are lost within the world and you're really listening, you're really involved in what Capra is saying and, and what Riskin's writing, you just get, you're, you're completely, um, you're completely in love of what is being told to you. So I guess that's like the biggest fault of the film. Um, I wouldn't say there's anything like, that's like disastrous about the film. You know, I don't think so. Like nothing really comes to mind. That's like, Oh my God, like that was fucking awful. No, it's just, I wanted specifically more of a 
kind of like push from Alice Sycamore's character. Like we get yeah. a, a lot of solo scenes, but I feel like she never has like the authority that like she would in this in this like household because everyone's so independent and like Grandpa pushes everyone to like be their own individual self. But like all she really talks about is like her family and like the differences of her family and and the Vanderhaus family. Like she doesn't really talk that much about herself. You mean the and, Kirby family? Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Difference between the two and. And it's just like they don't give her enough like authority to kind of like pursue and like build that relationship with Tony Kirby. So it's yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, like I, th- I think that just has to do with like the play that it comes from, and just that it could. I mean, neither of us has read it. It could just be like them writing her character down too. Yeah, it it, it could be. Um, but Alice is pretty. She's pretty damn strong, like headstrong in many ways. She loves to have fun, and yeah, like, and, and it's <laughs> all really, the all the family does. Yeah. yeah, the whole family does, and I, yeah, like her and Tony's relationship isn't what Clark Gable's and Claudette Colbert's is, and and, and it happened one night. No, because the whole film centers around. Yeah, that, and yeah. even but and Gene Arthur was in um is was in Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, and I, that was a better relationship with her and Gary Cooper than James Stewart and and her in this one. Uh, so it's a little bit of both, but. Yeah, like the characters, like her specifically, when they emphasize her so much, there isn't a lot there because she is kind of giving way to the men in the film. But there is some really great, really great scenes between her and Lionel Barrymore and her and James Stewart that are phenomenal to watch. Uh, But yeah, yeah, there just isn't. Yeah, but there just isn't. I would agree there isn't enough for Alice that's showcased in this movie because they take a lot of time to establish everyone else. And but maybe that's like what Capra was going for. What well, is? It's a lot about like male dominance and how like Lionel Barry's more grandpa's character is just like a do- the- he's a dominant male figure in everyone's lives, but he's not like a dominant male in people's lives. If that makes sense, like yeah. he's he doesn't like step a boundary while like the Kirby family kind of like you look at the head Kirby as like the authority. Like you can't take anything other than his word, and then that's the end of the story. It's kind of like two different fathers and exploring the relationship of that between their children, which is like really interesting. It's a super interesting idea for a movie. And I think it's done like in a very like lighthearted way. That's also really deep in a way that's more compelling than I think you would see in a lot of like screwball comedies, which we haven't really talked about how this film kind of, and a lot of other Capra films kind of define a screwball comedy. It may not be as screwy as some screwball comedies, but it's, I would, we were like discussing what kind of genre of film this would be. And, that's the only kind of genre we could really land on. So, I mean, can you think of any other genres this represents? I mean, no, it's, it, it, it's, it's a, yeah, it is a screwball comedy. It's, Cause it's a comedy a lot of the times, but yeah. it's also wants to be serious and have that kind of theme and relationship between two families come, yeah. come to the center. And it's not just about laughs and jokes at the end. Well, I can certainly visualize it as a play. I can certainly visualize yeah. how, especially when the Kirby's come over and, uh, you have a character like Donald running in and out of the house and you have, and, and even not even that scene, even the first scenes of the whole Vanderhoff house was every character is introduced. I can totally see how that is played out uh, on a stage. So do you think that like, this is a funny film? Cause I laughed out loud a, a few times. Like, did you find this funny or? Oh, I, yeah, I definitely found it funny. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny in different ways. Obviously it has that age touch. So some of the lines and some of the things that are said are like, Oh, that's funny. Like you don't hear that often or like that's a ironically funny line now. And may it may be not even intentional, but even the intentional jokes are like really funny. I, I kept telling you, we were talking about like our least favorite characters in the film and mine's definitely 
um, the youngest daughter, I think, yeah, she's the youngest daughter, Essie. And she's just like learning to be a ballerina and she's awful. And it's, it's like so blatantly awful that like, I was like, this is 1938. There's no way they're like blatantly making this joke about how bad of a, uh, no, they are. And it's yeah. like, she's awful at dancing and they like keep rubbing it in your face that she's awful at dancing. And it felt like a modern joke to me where I was just like, oh wow. Like you would definitely see that in like a, I don't know, like a Will Ferrell comedy or something like that nowadays. It's definitely yeah. carried from that. So right. yeah, I definitely think it's super funny. Yeah. I, I, I can think of it, but I can't put like a, a movie to it where a character is like thinks they're good at something, but they're really not. Yeah, they're really awful. Awesome. Yeah. yeah, and actually very interesting about S.C. Carmichael's character. Uh, she's played by Ann Miller, and, and Ann Miller was only 15 at the time of filming, uh, which is very shocking uh, for a number of things, but that was the 1930s, as they'll tell well, us. It's also shocking because she doesn't look 15 at all. No, like, she doesn't. She looks as old as our like lead female character played by Gene Arthur. Like They look like they could be the same age. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it's bizarre that I didn't think that was the case. And it makes more sense, too. She's very childlike, which I, for some reason, didn't think she was supposed to be because she's married in the film, too, which is also a weird yeah, relationship. Yeah, she's supposed to be a little bit older. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, her and Ed's relationship are... Well, Ed's a very interesting character in general. Um, but, yeah, it, it's... You didn't like his xylophone? No, I did like the xylophone. <laughs> I, I No, I actually, I like his character. Like, when I say interesting, it's interesting in, like, a... Yeah, you know how you look at a car wreck on the side of the road? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I could see that. I mean, he's kind of obnoxious in the same way that Essie is, yeah. and that's kind of the point. Just kind of the, shows the weird oddball family, and they definitely are the least like prominent family members. Maybe yeah. like the people in the basement, like the toy makers in the basement, the firework makers. Or, yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of like just characters thrown in there just to kind of like add some texture to the film, and that's definitely what Capra does a lot. Like we've definitely talked about some of his cinematography where he really focuses on like wide shots or medium shots where you just kind of see um, the upper torso of most of the actors. But he also loves like packing a frame with so much different action, and I think immediately of like the end scene when everyone's moving out of the Vanderhoff house and there's constantly people coming in and out and there's so much stuff going on in the background while the main characters are having a conversation. Like while the camera's static a lot of the time, it's very engaging and like it still feels like a living world while the camera's still static. Yeah, 100%. Like he, there's always something going on. And even when the family is like just there, like on the night when Tony's family comes, they're all kind of just like doing their own thing. There's a lot to go in there and like no one cares like what you're doing as long as you're doing what you love and that's kind of like the whole point of what uh grandpa uh is trying to emphasize from the beginning that you just get to do what you want you know uh, penny gets to just write her plays and and ed just plays his xylophone and or uh, paul sycamore just gets to play in the basement and make explosives uh, and it's just whatever you want to do, just do it as long as you're having fun while doing it. Yeah. Like as Tony Kirby said, living in a world Walt Disney must have thought of. Yeah. I Which, love that line. Oh, I mean, let's talk about James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart for a second. Cause <laughs> Jimmy boy, this is, it's still kind of earlier in his career, right? Like he's in his thirties or th- 32. I think he was when I, when he made this film. So yeah. he's, he's getting a little bit older, but he still kind of feels younger in this film. And he has some of his kind of stewardisms and you can see them kind of becoming through his performance and you kind of see them coming out of um, his character. Definitely. But I don't think he's fully gone all the way. And I wanted to talk about him for a second, just because 
when I think of James Stewart, I think of other actors like William Shatner or Jeff Goldblum, who I like love all three of these actors, but they kind of get to a point where they like become like a caricature of themselves. And I don't mean that in a bad, bad way. I think like Jack Nicholson, it kind of does it as well, where they know what people like about them and they're kind of shtick where they kind of like amplify it, where like everything kind of becomes them in a performance, which is definitely not a bad thing. I, I think there's just certain actors that would play themselves but kind of twist it in whatever character the film is kind of portraying so I really love kind of starting to see hints of his uh his like Atlantic accent and how it kind of deepens throughout uh his film career but this was kind of a nice little introduction to like a young little Jimmy Stewart as he's like this kid who wants to break away from his his dad's rule over him essentially yeah I mean he's definitely a highlight of the film um I thought his performance was was really great um yeah i mean you do get this like early you can just tell yeah you can tell it's just james stewart it's very it is very early on it's not as refined uh but it's it's really good it's it's compelling um he there's uh the scene where he's essentially alice essentially tells him to just get out after he messed up the whole night yeah you could actually felt uh, his like dread coming over him, just the way that like his body moved and like that yeah, movement. He's so good at moving his like shoulders and yeah, his, like, neck. He's a really good like emotive actor, and I think that's what like plays into that's what makes it, you know, with air quotes like real for or, or quotes honest about these. Yeah, definitely about his, especially his performance. Um, his performance is very honest because he's supposed to be like he's from this fairly stubborn family, but he kind of like breaks it when he's with his his soon-to-be wife or who he wants to marry and like you can kind of see that starting to break where it's like he's showing revealing his true self to her because he's like kind of always close and being the son that his dad wants him to be essentially yeah he doesn't want to be like his dad but he wants to he does want to do respect him and like yeah approve get approval from his father which definitely plays very key in the film yeah like he definitely yeah like tony definitely loves his parents but he's very turned off by everything like you can tell uh, like when they go to the, him and Gene, like go to the restaurant together, you can tell that he's like used to this lifestyle. There's a lot of, of mannerisms that that's like, okay, like I know how to handle like, like the rich upper class kind of people, but then he's just very fun and, and silly with, with Alice. And you kind of wish that it would, that he did a little bit more with the rest of like her family. You know, I kind of wish there was more and, and that's kind of a fault that I'm going to take away like deduct points, I guess, from the film is that James Stewart isn't showcased enough, but it's also the, the story structure in the play itself. It's like not about Tony, but it is about him, but he definitely takes a back seat in some really big scenes. And I feel like there could have been more uh, emphasized from him. Yeah. They kind of like wrap up their relationship and his relationship with Alice to kind of be that centerfold to like what brings the families together and what causes the conflict. So I think they're center, but they also don't give that much time um, as you would expect because they're, there really isn't a lead character. Like maybe they are the two lead performances, but I think you'd also argue that uh, Lionel Barrymore as the grandpa is uh, also one of the lead characters. Um, One more thing I want to talk about um, Tony or James Stewart is that you can really see his like earnesty and his like he's almost like childlike in a way where they're at the park him and Alice and they're having this little cute date and he's talking about how back when he was younger he like used to have these like dreams and hopes that were like way different than you know working with his father and he is essentially describing how he would like pick up grass and he wanted to know why grass was so green and what made it so green and if only we could like figure out why grass kind of absorbs sun or like 
becomes so green, then we could be like rich and we'd unlock the universe <laughs> to the world basically. And it's just super adorable hearing Jimmy Stewart like so long ago talking about photosynthesis, 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 <laughs> really hard to pronounce. Well, it's like solar power. He's just like, like that, like yeah. that's like the, that's what's kind of cool about with Capra's movies is that they do take these like very progressive themes and ideas and, and, and like, that's what the movie's about. And, and it's very interesting. And I kind of alluded to it at the beginning, uh, with his actual politics. So Capra was, a supposedly actually a very staunch Republican, but Riskin, his writing partner was a very huge liberal Democrat. And so that, that dichotomy in and of itself was fractured at one point in their lives, but you can tell that Capra still wanted to talk about these things. So I don't know if that's just because Capra liked money. I don't know like why like he was a Republican. Money always is like a huge part yeah. of his movies though. Like characters always want money, have a lot of money, trying to get money or like angry that someone else has more money. But then it's money that is devalued and by the the good of humanity. Yeah, the, by the progressives in, in the movies. It's like you don't need money. And, and that's like the whole title of the film. You can't take it with you. You can't take money with you when you die. Like what's the point of like trying to save it or, or trying to build upon it when you can just like live your life oh but yeah but going back to tony and alice uh yeah you really i really loved like him talking and being honest that whole like park scene i actually wanted to read uh some quotes from which is actually right before his uh talking about finding how grass becomes green so tony goes that family of yours boy they knocked me for a loop i don't know it just seems like in their own way they found what everybody's looking for People spend their whole lives building castles in the air and then nothing ever comes of them. Wonder why that is. It takes courage. Everybody's afraid to live. Um, so before I get to Alice's part of that, like when you hear that everybody's afraid to live, that it, it, that it takes courage of, of building castles in the air. It's like that Capra, you can feel like, again, those Capra themes of like that you got to build something with your life and do it how you want to. And like that's the courage because you can have people in these very powerful positions who don't know how to do it themselves and i like going back to like it's a wonderful life like you have mr potter played by lionel barrymore mr potter who's like this big rich man but he kind of realizes at the end that he doesn't need to like be that much of a dick towards everyone in the movie yeah he realizes that like his whole life has led him to this point and there's no point of being mean or angry or vindictive to anyone it's just about like enjoying the time that you have and I think, yeah, that is carried throughout all of his film. And I think that's a great quote that kind of just essentially says, like, follow your dreams. Like, yeah, he's I think throughout the film, that's why Tony's character is so interesting is that he's like becoming more and more um, like a Vanderhoff. He's learning more and more about like the way they live their lives. And he's starting to understand like, oh, you can do this. Like you can just follow your dreams and you may not be rich. Like my dad says is most important, but it's going to lead to a much happier long life. Yeah, and I, and to finish off like that scene, so Alice uh, responds back to Tony. She says, you ought to hear Grandpa on that subject. You know, he says most people nowadays are run by fear, fear of what they eat, fear of what they drink, fear of their jobs, their future, their health. They're scared to save money and scared to spend it. You know what his pet aversion is? People who commercialize on fear, scare you to death to sell you something you don't need. Tony says, yeah, I agree with him. Alice responds, so he kind of taught us all not to be afraid of anything. And to do what we want to do. And well, it's kind of fun anyways. And Tony says, yeah, that's it. But that takes courage, especially that do what you want to do department. That quote right there feels very modern. Like if you, that could have been, uh, you know, we're gearing up to uh, the Oscars and like Nomad Land is probably no one best picture. That feels like a Nomad Land quote. Does it not? Like, 
Yeah, just a random character she meets along the way. Let me yeah. let me well, tell you about your lesson. Yeah. The more I think about the movie, uh, let's not go. Down <laughs> We're not going to go there. Let's not go down that route. Um, yeah, no, it's it definitely feels modern. That's the weird thing about this movie is that there's a lot of like modern things about that. A lot of dialogue that feels modern, but then there's the weird kind of family dynamic, especially with Tony and his father, which feels so dated and the way he has to get like this direct approval from his dad to marry the woman that he's going to marry. Like it's a little odd and they definitely like, it's of the time, of course, like I can't deny that that's probably a very commonplace thing, but it's just not handled as like gracefully as like some of the other moments are in the film. And uh, we'll talk about it at the end because I want to talk about a couple more things like Capra has a weird obsession with like elevators. I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's so many yeah. elevators in this movie. Well, I know it's, it's a lot through Kirby's like office and his kind of like um, building that they are in. There's so many elevators and there's so many elevators like opening and I just noticed them at first because they're totally not real elevators because the way they open, like they <laughs> yeah. kind of feel like they're being manually kind of pulled open. It's just this weird little detail that I noticed that I was just like, man, there's so many. I think it's just this film in particular, but there's just so many elevators of characters going in and out. And um, yeah, it's just it's just weird. Random yeah, little thing. that actually like sparked like a synapse in my brain because there's actually another motif that is used throughout this film, and that's trees. And so thinking about you talking about elevators and that obsession, I think actually actually ties into it pretty well. And so uh, so we'll circle back to elevators in one second. So trees, why why I think trees are very significant in this film is because a sycamore is a tree. Oh yeah. And, and like that, okay. Yeah. Grandpa Vanderhoff. Okay. So he's Vanderhoff, but he's part of this Vanderhoff sycamore tree and everyone is a nut. Everyone's a nut in the, in the Vanderhoff sycamore family there. Um, I don't know if I actually looked up what a sycamore nut looked like. It's like this little spiky thing, but, (laughs) but when it falls to the ground, it, it disperses its seeds and it, and it grows more of these like beautiful trees. And, so I just thought like that motif and that idea that um, that that a family tree that this family is branched off in so many different ways, then goes back into the elevator idea, which is Kirby's world, and that's there's no family Mecha- aspect mechanical. It, and, yes, yeah, exactly. Very tech like based on technology and yeah, I never even thought about that. That's like super interesting. And the more we talk about this movie, the more it kind of like breaks down and, and reveals certain elements and looping it back until the elevator like there's a direct quote that i wanted to mention because it it's like this weird quote that you wouldn't really think about it until you see the end of the film and then after rewatching the movie it made me think even more about if this is like a direct reference to that so alice uh played by gene Arthur arthur is in i think a car and she's driving with uh tony kirby or james stewart and they're basically discussing he's talking about how like crazy um their family is and how they're like walt disney and she goes, Grandpa started up the elevator and turned right around and came back down. He could be a rich man, but he wasn't having any fun. And Alice is talking about how her grandpa was basically going to be in this big business and he was going to have a lot of money and make a lot of money. But he decided, like, I don't enjoy this, so I'm going to leave. So it's as simple as that. And it sums up his character really well. And if you heard that, you wouldn't really think much of it. You're like, oh, yeah, that just describes Grandpa and how he's different to, like, the main Kirby, the Kirby father. But then when we get to the very end, we get Kirby going up to sign the deal basically on this monopoly. Like they're selling the house. They finally got the last house. They're going to be in for this huge, huge deal. 
and it's going to be his like success for this company essentially and he goes up the elevators the elevators open in this really dramatic shot probably like my favorite shot of the whole movie where it opens up and like all the executives and board members are just like there and they're like ah they're like clapping it's like this really cool shot where kirby's in like the foreground and all these men are like along this really long table and as soon as he kind of sees that and their celebration and i think it's it's a great performance Edward Arnold, who plays Anthony Kirby, it's like this great moment of his performance where it's like almost a shock where he's just like realizing what this is going to do to this family. And he's just like, Jesus Christ, like these people are like so happy, but they don't even know like the other side of this relationship and the other side of how much his family is going to get hurt by this. And he immediately what he does, the elevator doors open. He turns around, they close, and he goes back down. So it's almost like a direct reference into what Alice is saying earlier is that, like, he kind of finds that moment where he turns around and realizes, like, this is not worth, and this is definitely not bringing me any joy. So why am I doing this? And turns around. I'm getting a little emotional just talking <laughs> about that scene. It hit me more than I was expecting. Yeah, it's it's a very powerful idea, and and, and that's just, like, kind of what what the movie's about. It's about this this realization of... But the Vanderhoff family was, was pretty right, <laughs> you know, kind of all along. Uh, and it, it just buys into that. You can you can hope and you can dream and, and you can you can do it all here in, in this house. And this house is really America. You can do it all there and that you can really make something for yourself. And and uh, and Anthony Kirby, AP Kirby, realizes that and he's very that's what brings him back in the end. And that's what kind of propels you know him to give that approval to Tony to be like yeah you can go on and marry her um but to now kind of branch off and to see some other characters in this house the sycamore house there's like there's a lot of goofy people and this is where I wanted to talk about Boris Kalenkov uh there is some fun things about him and you know what he may tell you that it stinks <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's such a goofy character he like feels like something out of like an adam sandler comedy like he he's very bizarre and i just he is he's a super tall skinny actor and he's yeah. just like clearly wearing a bodysuit like he's supposed to be like this really fat guy but it's like so clear that it's like a skinny guy wearing a huge fat suit which almost added to the comedy honestly yeah and uh so what when we were when you were talking about like filling the screen and everyone has these like background actions, I actually think so. His character has the best background action out of anyone in the entire film. So any, so they're all moving out of the house, and you see Kalenkov in the back in the kitchen. He's just making sandwiches, stuffing them in his pocket, making a sandwich, <laughs> eating it, making another sandwich, sticking into his pocket, and that becomes another thing. This like motif with him, which is that. He'll come and he goes, Grandpa, am I late for dinner? <laughs> and uh, Grandpa's like, no, you're fine. He's like, perfect. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he teaches Essie how to dance. He's very, you know, he's like willing to teach her how to dance, but he will go, but she stinks. Because <laughs> <laughs> she does really stink. <laughs> she, she does really stink. And as funny as like all this is, there actually is some very, very interesting political uh, things about him is like background that went over my head because I didn't understand fully, but then going back and researching it, I was like, whoa, that's really smart. Is that, you know, is that the play? Well, uh, is that due because the play did it or because Riskin did it? We'll get to that after this. So basically the family, the police come in um, to arrest everyone because of uh, these like communist pamphlets that Ed was, uh, was distributing. And they notice that Kalinkov's there and it is Russian. So they go, where are you from? And he goes, Omsk. 
and you're you know you're kind of like laughing you're like oh ha 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 because they funny cause russian name it's a funny russian name the police officer gives him this look like what the hell is omsk and but i actually think the police officer is doing a good job because he hears omsk and he something clicks in his head so history lesson for everyone now uh that's what worthy is, is a very big history lesson so omsk was is a part of russia where uh the white movement uh, which was actually the oppo- the opposed party of the Red Army. So they, the white movement was against uh, communism. They had set up this like uh, army base, like capital in Omsk, but they got destroyed <laughs> by the Red Army and communism succeeded. But Kolenkov probably escaped from this like horrific moment where he keeps on saying like everyone he knew, ba- he knew back in Russia is dead. And he's there's like this dark side of him, which grandpa kind of make pokes and makes fun of about him. So is this idea also that like America is this place that anyone can escape to, that anyone can become something from something horrible. And that's such a big issue today. And there's so much more nuance and it's so easy for us to talk about it. But that's something really strong for a guy like Capra because he is that Italian immigrant. He probably did escape poverty. You know, his, his parents wanted to get him to America and their family to America to be able to uh, enjoy a life and, and to become something successful. So you have a character like Kalenkov, it adds more to Capra's ideas of America and, and building upon it and making sure everyone has a place to go to, especially people from Omsk who are trying to fight communism. Yeah, it's a really interesting backstory that I would have no idea until you told me about that when you looked what Omsk is. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, I think we can't talk about side characters and we can't talk about like some political aspects of this film without talking about Reba played by Lillian Yarbo and Donald played by Eddie Anderson because they're essentially they're two black actors who play essentially like the help staff for the family. And throughout the film, they're very much treated as part of the family. Like, but when we look at the film overall and the way like the script is treating these characters, they're still treating them as like comedy fodder in in order to just throw a couple more jokes in like yeah they're a part of the family but like we're not going to give more time to them so So, yeah we once asked the question of like is this a race i think we were asking about simran is it a racist movie or is it like the characters are racist racist yeah Yeah. i don't think the characters are racist in this movie but they're probably in a little bit of the writing to gag upon the the two black characters in the film is a little yeah i think on the other side some people could argue where like every character has like gags and 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 pokes fun at like certain elements of their character but this feels like very intentional and it's just like when there's like a slowdown in a moment like you'll have donald run in with like why why do i need to get groceries like and it's just really like over the top comical performance where he's talking to reba and it's just like okay that wasn't necessary like or you could have at least tried to give them a little bit more but then it's like oh well, they're not main parts of the family and then there's so much of like polit- politics that opens up from just these two characters and being like a yeah. part of their um like maids and, and being cooks for the family and they don't really like fully dive deep uh, of them being a part of the family. Like there's not really integral scenes where they're kind of working and talking to the family. They're very much like texture to the background to kind of establish this family. Yeah. And there is some like not so great behind the scenes aspects. So this is actually from uh, AFI's website about the film, uh, the American Film Institute. And they wrote, uh, according to the film's file in the MPAA PCA collection at the Ampass Library, so the Academy's library, PCA director Joseph I. Breen was concerned about the interactions between Donald and Reba and their employers, the Vanderhoff family. 
In a letter to Harry Cohen, who was the head of Columbia, Breen stated when showing the Negro characters, Reba and Donald care should be taken to avoid objection in southern sections of the country where the showing of Negroes in association with whites has sometimes been subjected to criticism by the public generally and to deletion by political censor boards. Such criticism has been based on the feeling that Negroes in pictures have been shown on terms too familiar and of, quote, social equality. That is infuriating to read, and I'm glad that I did discover that that was an issue brought up by the MPAA, like at the time for them was an issue because they didn't want to hurt the Southern people and actually speaks more to the next movie. We're going to talk to you Gone with the wind because everyone loved that movie and everyone in Hollywood wanted to be a part of it. So it's like not that surprising that they're trying to essentially placate to the people in the fucking South and their racist behaviors. It's they're interesting elements and it makes me like kind of think about a left out part of this film is we have to imagine that like the Kirby family, this really rich, wealthy family, way more rich than the Vanderoff's family also has like some sort of health help service. Or, well, there is one other black character and that's the guy who operates the elevator in Kirby's office in, in the building. Yeah. yeah. But you have to also imagine that like at home, they probably have like a help staff and maybe they aren't yeah. being treated like ne- not nearly as well as like Reba and Donald are in the, in the Vanderhoff's family. So it's like an element they could have dived deep into, but then it gets like way more deeper into like politics and, you know, this weird relationship that the, the white, fa- these both these white families have um, with these uh, characters. So it's just one of those tricky subjects where it's not, they don't get painted in like a nice light, but they're not painted in like an insanely aggressive, extremely racist light. Like what we saw in Cimarron yeah. and some of these earlier films. So it's just something we have to kind of speak about because it's kind of hard to, avoid that when talking about this film because yeah. there definitely are some uh, some tough elements of it. Yeah, it can be questionable. But the guy who plays Donald, uh, while I was looking up about him, so his name is Eddie uh, Anderson. That's how he's credited in the movie, but he's actually Eddie Rochester Anderson. And he was actually a big part of the Jack Penny uh, radio show. And he was very well loved and very well respected. And um, getting to know that, getting to read that, you know, really made me happy because this wasn't just like a guy... Uh, like Isaiah Jackson and Simmerin that was kind of just tossed aside at one point in his career. Uh, but no, but Andy Anderson was very well respected. He was given a ton of uh, radio time and, and used very effectively. So uh, we just wanted to tip our caps to Eddie Anderson and Lillian Yarbo, who despite may have been typecast or put into a box that they didn't have to be. in, they actually were uh, pretty great successful careers and, Really in the Sycamore family, which is, again represents those progressive values were treated very much like family. Um, it's just, yeah, it's very hard to look past some of the way that they're shown and the way that uh, the way that they're played up in the film at times. So moving on to my next thing that I kind of really wanted to harp on with this movie is that it's based on a play. And it's something that I want to keep on bringing up with Best Picture winners as we go through the years, especially as we get more films that were based on musicals or plays, you know, we're going to hit a movie that's based off a Shakespeare play. And so I think that it's a very fair question to ask, which is, you know, is it fair for these films to gain such high praise based on something that is already there, that that it's easily adaptable, like a play, like, you know, or is there more nuance to, to my question? Is there more, um, is there more to it rather than just like, oh, well, it's just so easy just to take a play script and just make it into a film. So I think that um, I think it just is a fair question to first ask. And then we can kind of jump into the background of the play itself. 
I want to like compare this to Cavalcade because that is a direct play and it's it's more kind of based in history and but it still focuses on two families essentially in the same way that this film does and I think to uh, to really compare the two it's it's really clear how much like earnest and and solid filmmaking like we get from Capra and kind of defines these characters so yeah you get like leverage from writing based on a play and you may get some of that dialogue already kind of pre-written but there's a lot of work that you still have to kind of translate for a screen it's it's much different and then you have the whole unique perspective of like bringing a camera and choosing specific angles and while Capra is not like a showy director when it comes to like the visual style he really focuses on these characters and he gives them like the time um, and he gives them the space to really breathe. And, you know, we we get all sorts of different um, sets throughout this film that you may not really feel if you were like kind of locked on a stage in a play. Like obviously you have the house, which is like a huge dynamic and that kind of would work really well in a play. But you get the scene where they go out to dinner and they have all the drama of that scene and you have the differences between these two families that I think you can kind of go deeper with uh, actual cinematography and, and something that kind of goes deeper. Uh, but one thing that seems oddly similar to what I would imagine the play would be like is that there's not really like a score throughout this film, nothing that kind of guides you from characters' motivations or from scene to scene. It's almost dead quiet throughout the whole film. Yeah, it, it is uh, dead quiet. And I think that it, it is interesting too because there's a lot of musical aspects to it. Like Grandpa has a harmonica, Ed plays yeah. the xylophone. There's a lot of dancing there. Everyone comes together. There's a lot of whistling. Uh, so it, it, it's a very musical film and, and based off of a play. Uh, but there is, yeah, there is no true score to the movie, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, yeah, which, which makes it an interesting watch too, because you're not having that constant uh, stimulant to keep you engaged. So, but a little bit about the play itself. So the play came out in 1936. It was written by George S. Kaufman and Moss Hart. Uh, it was an original Broadway production that was performed 838 times. And the biggest thing about it is that it won the Pulitzer Prize for drama in 1937. So this is actually the first Best Picture winner to be based off of a Pulitzer Prize winning work. Uh, and there are five. Uh, I might have missed one, but I tried to come through it as best as I could. And, and these were the five that... Uh, that seemed to work for me. So uh, you can't take it with you. It came out in 1938 based off of a 1936 Pulitzer winning play. Then you have Gone with the Wind in 1939, which is based off of a Pulitzer winning novel. All the King's Men in 1949, also based off of a novel. Driving Miss Daisy, which came out in 1989, which is based off the 88 play. And then you have Spotlight, which won in 2015. And it's based off of Boston Globe's 2003 article, which won a Pulitzer Prize as well. So, the fact that this play won a Pulitzer Prize and, and it was so well-loved and it was performed so many times, the fact that you have all these uh, progressive values and ideas, and again, I want to challenge that, is that something to applaud Capra and Riskin for? Yeah, I think so, because it's, it's challenging. And I didn't know if I completely like finished my comparison between Cavalcade, because that, that was a predominant play, and people really loved it, and it was really progressive as well at the time. And you look at the film adaptation of it and it's so dull and boring. And I would say it's like the film that we watched so far that like doesn't have a soul. Like it's so soulless and kind of drab. And again, it's got similar camera movements where there are no camera movements and it's similar to the way that Capricorn films, but 
it's not dull. Like there's, it's not just characters like reading out paragraphs and paragraphs of dialogue. It's characters where they know where to cut the line. They know how to cut a couple lines from what may have been such a longer speech in the play. They know they have to keep this movie going and they have to kind of move on to other characters because they don't have, you know, four hours like you would in a play. And I, I don't think that's a crutch, you know, it's, it's hard to adapt something, especially something that's so popular and significant. If it won a Pulitzer prize, I think it's, it's a hard feat and, you know, they're not making up these characters or some of the dialogue word for word, but it's hard to, to take one medium and adapt it into another and adapt it into another that's so sig- so successful and then still holds up to this day. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think that for me, it, it's just a question that I keep on wanting to ask. And I don't know if that's because I really value when something is original, when it's creative, which is which is weird for me because my favorite movies are Lord of the Rings, which is based off of a phenomenal, like one of the best novels ever. So it's like, you got to have that as your basis. So like that, and I do think that's sort of unfair in it's very weird way. Like when Hamlet wins in the forties, it's like, man, you're basing that off of like the most prolific writer of all time. You know, I, and I, I don't have an answer. And I, I just asked this question just to ask these questions, but I think it's fair to, to wonder why, like, why does adapted work tend to be so well appreciated and so well loved? I mean, it's a very common, uh, common companion to a best picture winner is winning not only screenplay, but especially adapted screenplay. Um, so it's, it's just a question that I just want to keep on bringing up and I want people to think about, it, cause I think there's, uh, I think there is some merit to ask like more, especially when we're getting to a, an age now, which it's very disappointing that they're just constant sequels or it's constant yeah. reimagining of this or a remake of that. Can mm-hmm. we, like, we don't have originality, I feel like, or at least there isn't as much originality, which makes certain films that come out really good when they are new and original. Yeah, and it's something that we really haven't seen before, which is far and few between, but not here where we go back in time where we get to see all this original and pretty inspiring ideas from Capra and some of these other directors. But I think when it comes down to it, it's it's how you adapt that script, obviously, and how you kind of bring those characters while, you know, still maintaining that essence. But it's so important how we are moving and edited throughout the entire film. You know, when when you watch a play, you edit it yourself. Like you're just watching whoever you want to watch on stage. Maybe it's the person who's talking at the moment, but that may not always be as easy as, you know, deciding in a film what scene should have what characters. And I don't think you could have a shot as like emotional and um, impactful as the senior Kirby, the father Kirby going up the elevator and seeing the board of directors from his POV essentially and getting his like close up reaction to it. And I think that's what Capra does really well with the cinematography is that it's very static and still while having a lot of motion in frame, it's a lot of medium shots, but he rarely, and I kept skimming through the film looking and looking for it, he rarely has close ups in his films. And it's only in very particular moments where characters are are changing essentially. And it's like the father uh, the Kirby father who's changing in that moment, it's a close up and they barely see close ups. And then you have close ups at the end um, with the grandpa sitting down with the Kirby and, and the Kirby father and kind of discussing with him about, you know, the ways of life and how he's finally coming to terms with the way that uh, this family lives as well. So he savors those close ups and it makes it feel way more impactful and, and really earnest. And I think that kind of adds to, to his filmmaking quality as well. Yeah, he definitely, he saves it. And he also, uh, when it comes to two scenes in particular, 
the one between uh, both featuring Alice, Alice and Tony in the park, and then Alice and her grandfather uh, in her bedroom. The, both of those shots are very close and personal. And, um, you know, we talked about, in, and it happened one night, there was this, um, a scene between uh, Claudette Colbert's character and her father that was, at the end, that was very close and a little almost too uncomfortable close. But he does like that. He does love to bring people when it comes to those really big emotional moments to bind them and, and make it so that when you're watching them on the screen, like you're almost sitting right in their laps. Yeah, you're right you, there with them. Yeah. And, and, and that's what also helps with this film is because there's so many long takes um, that the actors really get to dive deep into the roles. And uh, so I actually wanted to talk, talk about the, the scene between grandpa and Alice, because I'm talking about my grandma. Like that was a scene that I was just like, it just felt that one felt really real. And it felt like a conversation that I've had before. Why? Because talking to your, uh, to your grandma or your your grandpa, just about things you like and things you love. It it, it can be, it can be emotional and it can feel like there. It's like this bond. It's like this very strange bond because there's this person who like lived this whole life before you and, who got to experience the world. And now you get to live it and carry on their traditions and their thoughts and ideas. And I think that, you know, grandpa really loves Alice uh, a lot. Cause he, I think he sees grant, you know, his wife, grandma uh, in her in many ways, you know, the re like grandpa, uh, his foot is broken throughout the whole movie. That's cause he was trying to slide down the banister like Alice. <laughs> uh, so it's the fact that he's willing to, to play into it and to, and to have fun and, and be young in many ways. So, uh, yeah, so the shot, the, the scene that's in Alice's bedroom um, is between her and her grandpa, and, and he's trying to figure out, like, who this guy is, who who Tony is. Uh, and they're, they're talking about, about each other and all that. Then he starts to talk about grandma. And Alice goes, what was she like? And grandpa just kind of lackadaisically points to the mirror, and he's like, look in there. And that, to me, was that had me in tears because that – that again spoke to this whole idea of of, of carrying on tradition uh, of of passing things along of that grandparent uh, grandchild you know relationship that that I value a lot that I think is very important and I think is showcased a lot in this movie. Yeah, it's really sweet. I mean, that kind of relationship is really interesting because most of the time you see your grandparents maybe like once a month if you're lucky sometimes it's like every three months or even like once a year for holidays so uh, that's usually what i think of when i think of my grandparents but it's like when you do see them they like try to project so much wisdom on you essentially because they're trying to push it on from their lives and their experiences you know whether that's good or bad i think in this film it's all good you know it's all he's such like an earnest and sweet grandpa that it's like he literally has no faults into him he's like kind of the jesus figure of this film essentially and he's like a prophet in a way where he kind of pushes it onto these characters and they kind of like take that in for themselves and try to use that and, and explore that in their own lives. And it's, yeah, it's so sweet and endearing that it's like what he wants to, uh, it's what he wants to give to his family. Like Kirby wants to leave behind a fortune and leave behind this huge wall street success to his family. And grandpa Vanderhoff is just like, yeah, I just want you guys just to be happy. Just do it, do what you want. Um, and that scene, it, it ends actually, so it's a very long take scene. It's this kind of medium, extreme medium two shot of them. And then the last line is essentially grandpa's explanation of why he won't sell the house. And he said it would, it would be like walking out on grandma. And then after he says that line is when we get the f- first cut from when that whole 
back and forth starts and it, it's of him getting up. So why why would why would he cut why would Capper cut to a wide shot like that? Like why do you think? Is that just to take a breath and go and bring you out for a second? Or is, I think so. Yeah. I mean, like in film school, they kind of teach you to cut or edit based on like beats of a performance. So it's like a significant line that kind of affects one character or the other. You give like that space and that editing to kind of give that line of dialogue or moment kind of more of a impact, more of like an oomph. And I think especially with that line where it's like as deep and personal as that is. And that's kind of like the core center of why this house is so important. You kind of like have to really like emphasize that and make it even more significant. I can't go through this movie. After this, we talk about the end because I think it's a good wrap up to finish the end and how we kind of feel about the Capra-esque ending. I can't go through this podcast without talking about wrestling. (laughs) I've, I've weirdly become a huge fan of wrestling in the past two years and there's multiple references to wrestling in this movie which i found really bizarre coming from 1938 because my experiences with wrestling kind of started um not in the 80s but watching 80s wrestling and kind of working my way throughout history of wrestling and i always think of like the 70s and 80s as like the iconic like big boom in in wrestling but i was just clearly uneducated of how far wrestling goes back and (laughs) not only are is there a mention of no holds barred which is actually the last line said by the grandpa at the very end at the dinner at the dinner table but we also have boris the the uh, russian character that we spoke about recently full up doing a wrestling move (laughs) on mr kirby he just straight up drops him um and it's just (laughs) <laughs> he does a German suplex, I think, yeah. if I remember correctly. And it's just so which Kirby a, does back to him which, at, the at the end. Yeah. Yes. Which is like so weird and bizarre. And my friend Ryan, who introduced me to wrestling, like I need hit to tell him to watch this movie. Cause it's like this movie from 1938 is they have two, two moments where they do German suplexes just randomly in the family room of this house, yeah. not even on like a safe cushion floor or anything. And then at the last line of the movie is literally no holds barred. And which is essentially for people that don't know much about wrestling is a match where there are no rules. There's no ref. Usually it's like, they usually have a lot of weapons and stuff in the ring. Like it's, it's kind of like how we do this podcast. <laughs> yes. It's a free for all essentially. And it's the last line of the movie. And it's, you could say it's, about kind of the themes and about being open and having no rules in your life. Or it could just simply be about the grandpa saying there's no hold, no hold bar and uh, eat up, you know, eat everything on the table. There's no rules. Just enjoy life essentially. So I had to talk about wrestling because there's no way I could get through this movie without the first moment we get wrestling in the, uh, <laughs> in the best picture winner. That's it's, it's epic. I don't think there's been much wrestling in Academy nomination no. since So No, no, there hasn't been much. I mean, there was the wrestler phenomenal movie. That was, uh, was that an even nominated for best picture? That was probably writing or something like that. It might've been. I know he was nominated for best actor, which, uh, I'm very mad that Mickey Rourke didn't get that. But, uh, yeah, there is a lot of wrestling. There's, it, it's that playful aspect. It's just, it's just like fun. Like that, like who, who in 1938 is really into wrestling? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. like, like that's the whole thing. Like, who in 1938 is into playing a xylophone? Who's into candy making? Who's into yeah, spreading toy making? Like, so specific, all to, these weirdly specific things. Yeah, yeah. even Penny, uh, you know, Alice's mom, who we barely even talked about. Like, she's an extremely eccentric character, and she's writing this like play novel, and she keeps on asking everyone if they've ever been ever been in a monastery, and there's like all these like weird things specifically about her. It's a great performance, but. Yeah, it's like, okay, wrestling is just a part of this world. It's a part of this 
this home of it's just something they love. Yeah. yeah, it's something they love. It's it's really cool. Um, yeah, I, why wrestling is so emphasized, I don't know. But, yeah, it's just but this it, weird it, weird thing that's emphasized. Yeah. And I saw the no holds bar. I was like, did he really say that? I had to go back and, and watch the ending a couple of times, and I'm like, yep, subtitles on. He really said that, <laughs> and. I had to look it up. I was like, when is this first used? Like, I thought this was a more modern term and supposedly it was first seen in text in like 1980 or 1898 around that era. And then there's a movie in 1952 actually called No Holds Barred. So I was just like, I got like deep into the wrestling <laughs> film history, which then in 1989, there's a film starring Hulk Hogan called No Holds Barred. So end of the wrestling talk this is not a wrestling <laughs> podcast. I want to take this and then move in to the scene right before the ending dinner scene, which is like the families coming together finally. Uh, right before that, we have essentially the Vanderhoffs are moving out. They officially know that they have to sell the house. They're getting kicked out essentially. But we have Grandpa there who's still just weirdly kind of happy still, and he's still kind of like being this soulful person. And we have uh, Tony Kirby comes in because he's looking for his uh, – for Alice and he like really wants to find her because they kind of broke off because she kind of realizes what this or what she thinks this whole relationship is based off of, which is just a deal to be done for the Kirby family. And we have them coming together and we bring in uh, the senior father Kirby and he comes in and they play harmonica, which is like really sweet together. And they have this like really um, sweet moment where he kind of teaches him how to play this song and, we get these like Capra elements where he loves singing. Not only does he love singing, but he loves groups of people. And, and especially for his climaxes of his films, he loves like groups of people coming together in unison, singing, being joyful and being happy. And it's very reminiscent to what we see later on in It's a Wonderful Life because it's so similar to the end oh, yeah. of It's a Wonderful Life. Like, oh, it's very similar. Well, the, the courtroom scene is very much like It's a Wonderful Life. You know, it almost yeah. feels like directly from it. Um I feel like there's so much of this film, like uh, before going to that courtroom scene, there's like so much we haven't even discussed upon about this film that I don't even know if we'll even get to. Uh, and, and I think that just speaks to, again, I think it just speaks to Capra's ideas himself. So going again, digressing, but going to that courtroom scene. Uh, so you have, again, you're, you have this whole thing with like the Kirby family is very like, oh my God, I'm in jail. Like I need to get out of here. And the Vanderhoff and Sycamores are kind of just like, yeah, it's like whatever. You actually get a funny, uh, a pretty truthful line. I shouldn't say funny. Uh, it's a pretty truthful line from uh, from Donald, and he goes home again <laughs> when he walks right into the the jail cell. And ground, and you know, there's some other good lines where Grandpa says to Kirby, "You did come on the wrong night." Um, and then yet Mrs. Kirby, who I think is the true villain of the film, she goes she goes to Alice, "You'd stay where you belong and stop being ambitious." which is just awful. Uh, yeah, Mrs. Kirby, like I, we haven't talked enough about Mrs. Kirby. I don't even know if we really need to, but no, she's, she's kind of just the worst person in the entire film and represents <laughs> what Capra doesn't like about people and doesn't want American ideals to be. Um, but yeah, so so you're, they're in this jail and they're, they're trying to get out and then they go into this night court scene and it's packed and you immediately think because you had some reporters in, in like this quick scene before you think, oh God, like the whole press sees this. But in fact, it was just, all of grandpa's friends that were there to support him and to, to show that like these, that the Sycamores and Vanderhoffs aren't these like nutty, you know, they kind of are nutty. These aren't, they aren't these like crazy people that are going to cause that much trouble. And then you get this direct connection to it's a wonderful life when they have to pay this hundred dollar vine, which I don't know how much a hundred dollars would translate to today, but everyone almost shot themselves when, oh, yeah. they, when they found out that it was a hundred dollar fine. 
And uh, they all just start paying. They all start putting money in a hat and they pay the fine for grandpa, which is exactly what I, it kind of happens two times. Well, actually, no, it happens the end of it's a wonderful life. And then the other time that I mistaken was when uh, James Stewart character was just giving money to people from the bank to keep it open. Oh yeah. 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 Just passing the bills along to every person in line. Yeah. Yeah. So it's uh yeah it, it's it but it, it again it brings everyone together like through div- diversity and and conflict and and contradictions and di- it, they all come together in the end and and it's pretty great and they play this uh Polly Wally Doodle song uh on the harmonicas and, and xylophone you get Essie's dancing you yeah and all the characters are kind of like rejoicing coming back together but then you still have that conflict going on and I've talked earlier about my issues and the issues with. Uh, Tony Kirby, um, played by James Stewart, of course, as we said, and Alice's character where they're supposed to have this like romantic love and they're supposed to really come together and you're supposed to buy it. But it happens so quickly that it's almost like Capra doesn't want to focus too much on them and he wants to mainly focus on the, the two um, kind of father figures in the, in the families and more focus on them kind of rejoicing in, in unity. But essentially they come and and James Stewart comes in and he finally uh, reunites with Alice, but they don't really show it. There's no, yeah, there's no scene between them. They just know that like Tony's looking for her. He goes upstairs and he like finally gets to open the door and sees her. But you don't really like see much of that scene beyond there. It just goes back to the grandparent or the, the father figures back downstairs um, but right before that scene ends is what kind of really rubbed me the wrong way is that we have essentially Tony Kirby looking to his father and still like wanting the confirmation that he can marry this woman. And it's like this really weird, like forced moment that I just think kind of like ruins their relationship again. Cause I, I thought that's what the scene's supposed to be about is that we're like moving past this. Like we're kind of growing and you don't need your father's permission. Like you don't need his permission to like move on from the job that, cause you don't want to work for him. You want to like explore your own career and follow your own passions, but yet you still need this exact permission that you can marry this woman. And there's no say of whether she wants to marry him, like why she wants to get back with him, whether she believes him or not. So it's just kind of this plot line that they're like, Oh no, no, no it's fine. Don't worry about it. They're back together. Yeah, it's yeah, okay. They, it's okay. Don't worry about it. They're meant to be together. It's how it works. A man and a woman, they just, like that. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, okay, I would have liked a little bit more there since like a lot of this film is based around their relationship and I just wanted like a, a bigger scene between the two of them at least for them to come together and maybe not relying again on this dad's approval at the very end. Yeah, it, it's it's very odd and, and it's one of the things that I would uh, I would take points off away just because it's you want to see that resolution between them because Alice is really hurt by like what he did. Yeah, like Tony's intention was, well, I want my parents to see your parents as the way they are. But Alice is like, yeah, like you can see them as the way they are, but don't do it on a night when I wasn't expecting you type of thing like you idiot. And yeah. and it's just – and so that's what makes her – that's what makes Alice a really strong character because she's not afraid to tell this guy that she really likes – actually really just loves that he's just an idiot and, and it's his fault and that this whole thing happened and – it's really the reason why that she doesn't want to be with him, although I guess she really does because she just magically does it in the end. And we again have that weird comparison of it happens one night and uh, Mr. D goes to town where it's like two lovers that like are lying to each other's faces essentially and not telling the truth. So you have that kind of aspect and then them kind of making up, but they don't show the full making up. Like with it happened one night, you have 
um, him finally coming back and he's like, oh, I'm going to finally like say I'm in love with her and I'm going to finally admit for my feelings in front of her. But they kind of skip a beat and you're kind of like there already to skip right to the end. So it's, it's odd. It's maybe like some aspect of romantic comedy or a screwball comedy that like wasn't fully developed yet. Like they didn't want to give them full more time or maybe there was a scene and it just didn't work and flow as well as this like joyful singing, happy ending. So, yeah. And it could have just been how the play was, but it is a very weird exposition that grandpa gives at the end to kind of just explain away how things are resolved at the end. The dining room table. Yeah. Yeah, And it's like, okay, like it's great that you get to meet to see everyone together at the end, but you kind of wish there was more to it. And I wish we could talk more about, you know, this movie in general. Uh, if you want to reach out to us and talk more about it, you can't take it with you. You can find us on Instagram at worthy pod. You can follow us on Twitter. You can email us at worthy submissions at gmail.com uh, to give us any ideas that you may have about this movie. Cause there's so much to talk about, but I actually wanted to really end this conversation and pull out uh, everything and swing back to Capra with two final quotes. Uh, the first one is from something you probably wouldn't expect that we would bring up. Although if you do know us, you probably would expect us to bring this up. And it's from the Marvel Assemble docu-series that is appearing on Disney+. And they had a whole uh, hour-long episode talking about WandaVision. And for those who don't know or haven't seen WandaVision at this point, I'll try not to bring any spoilers, but essentially it's a, it, it honors all these different styles and ways of television making. And, you know, starting from the 50s up until the 60s and 70s and how that style progressed through time. And so you have Elizabeth Olsen, who is the main star of WandaVision, who plays Wanda Maximoff or the the Scarlet Witch. And she gave this really, really good quote that I felt very like we I had to bring this up when talking about Capra. So she says, I went to theater school like you study, you study screwball comedies you study film noir style of acting you feel so stupid in college thinking when am i ever going to do this no one makes this anymore it makes you use all those tools that you have somewhere in you and to me that's that is what makes capra films and these and really most of these movies from the 30s you know i know we've had some really bad best picture winners but the fact that a screwball comedy is something that someone like Elizabeth Olsen, who's a really great actress is saying like, that's what I had to study. Like something like a screwball comedy or a film noir. Those are like classic film and acting styles that I had to study that I had to understand in order to become a better, you know, actor, actress myself. And so I felt like that was something that I wanted to kind of circle back to this whole idea of Capra and what he brought to the film industry. And that's like a pillar of his is screwball comedies and that kind of filmmaking and that kind of acting uh, that he requires in all his movies, but just showcased and you can't take it with you. Yeah, I think you can't really say there's without a doubt Capra inspired and definitely influenced sitcoms, especially the early 50, 50 sitcoms from his films and that kind of dynamic characters have. And I think it's it's definitely drawn directly from like Capra's America or Capra's filmography. It's definitely inspired into television later on in the in the 50s and 60s for sure. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it was really great. Go watch WandaVision, and you'll understand a little bit more about what I'm talking about and why it is important to value screwball comedies and film noirs if you ever want to be an actor because that's where the masters did it, like James Stewart, like Gene Arthur, like Lionel Barrymore, like Edward Arnold. Like, everyone in this movie, they did it because they knew how to act because of screwball comedies, that style of acting, which is just so important to the history of cinema. And we 
end this whole discussion of You Can't Take It With You with a final quote from uh, of another prominent uh, director and actor, and that's John Cassavetes. And he said this about Frank Capra. He said, maybe there really wasn't an America. It was only Frank Capra. Yeah, that's a really powerful quote. <laughs> like, Should we just end it on that? Like, I, I think we should just end it like that. Let that sink in for everyone, everything we've been talking about. Maybe there really wasn't an America. It was only Frank Capra. The 11th Academy Awards were held on February 23, 1939 at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles, California. It was the first Academy Award show without any official host, and this was the first ceremony in which a foreign language film, Grand Illusion, was nominated for Best Picture. So Academy Honorary Awards at the 11th Academy Awards was given to a few people. The first was to J. Arthur Ball for his outstanding contributions to the advancement of color and motion picture photography. There's also an Academy Award giving out for the outstanding achievement in creating special photographic and sound effects in the Paramount production Spawn of the North, which was given out to a number of people. There was uh, another Academy Honorary Award given out to Oliver Marsh and Alan Davey for the color cinematography of the Metro Goldwyn Mayer production Sweethearts. There is another one given out to Harry M. Warner in recognition of patriotic service in the production of historical short, short subject presenting significant episodes in the early struggle of the American people for liberty. And then there was a, another unique Academy Award, and probably many people have seen this, given to Walt Disney for creating Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, recognized as significant screen innovation, which has charmed millions and pioneered a great new entertainment field for the motion picture cartoon and the prize was given as a huge one big statuette and then seven miniature statuettes trailing behind it and i think some of you film lovers may have seen that image because it's adorable with the seven tiny little trophies next to walt disney next to the classic size oscar it's it's an iconic image and adorable yeah. I, like. I think that uh, shirley temple was the one who like sort of gave it to him yeah Cause yeah because i remember with her looking at all the miniature oscars as well yeah so adorable just such a cute idea and it was a huge snub the last year for snow white and the seven dwarfs to not really even be recognized at all so it's good that they came yeah. around and it was probably just how popular and just how beautiful that film is just should, should have won over life of emile zola yeah yeah <laughs> but uh but yeah it is really significant and actually our best picture winner today you can't take it with you makes two disney references they mention the whole it's that the sycamore house is like something walt disney thought of and uh there's a little whistling toy in the workshop of the sycamores that is doing uh, a little tune called whistle while you work which is from snow white and the seven dwarves so there's that whimsical aspect and Walt Disney continuing to dominate the Hollywood and cinematic world. Best film editing went to the adventures of Robin hood to Ralph Dawson. Uh, we've mentioned Ralph Dawson before he has won. This is the third and final Oscar. He's created so many or edited really. Uh, well, I guess creating two, uh, so many wonderful movies and, uh, it's a, He's one of a few people to have won three Best Film Editing Awards. But I actually wanted to talk about Gene Havlick for You Can't Take It With You, who was nominated in this category. Um, he did win for the 1937 Capra film Lost Horizon, and he's a constant collaborator. So do you think that You Can't Take It With You, John, could have won for its uh, film editing? I think it's definitely worthy of being 
up there. You know, we talked about a lot of the long takes, but we've also talked about how great some of the editing is, especially on that scene with Allison, uh, Allison, the grandpa talking, kind of like revealing his inner truth and um, showing just exactly kind of how much editing can impact and, and add emotion and its significance to a scene. So I heard a, I hear a lot of good things about the Avengers of Robin Hood and, and how kind of like fun and it still holds up today. So I definitely need to watch that film, but I think You Can't Take It With You is definitely worthy of, of that category for sure. Best Cinematography goes to Joseph Ruttenberg for The Great Waltz. This is a four-time Oscar-winning cinematographer, Joseph Ruttenberg, and he his other awards are from 1942's Miss Miniver, 1956's Somebody Up There Likes Me, and 1958's Gigi. Yeah, and his Ruttenberg's four wins in this category is tied for the most ever with Leon Chamroy, who is also nominated in this year for The Young in Heart. And actually, all the nominees, for the most part in this year, either won or were nominated several times. I actually wanted to give them all their due. So yeah, you have the Young Heart, Young in Heart, which was uh, photographed by Leon Shamroy. He's a four-time winner. You have Joseph Walker for You Can't Take It With You, and he's a four-time nominee. Uh, Robert DeGrasse for Vivacious Lady. This is the only nominee, so it's the only one that kind of doesn't fall into this. But then you have Suez, which was photographed by Peveril Marley, which he's a two-time nominee. Norbert Brodeen for Merrily We Live, who's a three-time nominee. Joseph Valentine for Mad About Music. He is a five-time nominee and won. Then you have Ernest Haller for Jezebel, and he won for Gone with the Wind. He was nominated seven times. You have Victor Milner for The Buccaneer. He won one Oscar, and he has been nominated nine times. Uh, Then you also have Ernest Miller and Harry J. Wilde. This is their only nominations for Army Girl. And then you have uh, a guy, James Wong Howe, for Algiers, he's won two times and he had 10 nominations. Uh, he began his career in the film industry as an assistant to Cecile B. DeMille and uh, how pioneered the use of wide-angle lenses and low-key lighting, as well as the use of the crab dolly. And uh, James Wong Howe is of uh, Chinese descent, and uh, I would like to give him his due by saying all that. Best Art Direction went to The Adventures of Robin Hood to Carl Jules Weil. Uh, this is his only win in this category, but he was also the art director for uh, for Casablanca. But surprisingly, You Can't Take It With You is not nominated in this category. And I was a little shocked by that because so much of that whole world is all the based house. on the set. Yeah, yeah the, the house. Sycamore house and yeah, all the offices and stuff like that. Yeah, totally worthy. I mean, I literally spoke about elevators for like three minutes. So <laughs> if I was fascinated by that aspect, yeah, I think the rest of the art direction is quite impressive. Best sound recording goes to Thomas T. Moulton for The Cowboy and the Lady. This is Thomas T. Moulton's second win, and he won the previous year for The Hurricane and won a total of five awards, including the 1950 Best Picture winner, All About Eve. Best song goes to Thanks for the Memory from the big broadcast of 1938. Music by Ralph Ranger, lyrics by Leo Robin. Uh, so the song uh, is sung by Bob Hope in the big broadcast in 1938, and it becomes his signature tune uh, for pretty much his whole career. Uh, so yeah, it's kind of cool that Bob Hope kind of got this like a little Oscar shout out. He didn't win, but he did perform that song in the movie, uh, the big broadcast of 1938. Best scoring goes to Alfred Newman for Alexander's Ragtime Band. Alfred Newman is the uncle of Randy Newman, 
Alfred won nine Academy Awards out of the 45 nominations, most nominated extended family in Oscar history between Alfred, Randy, and Lionel Newman. Now, I got to just interrupt and say Randy Newman is an (laughs) icon and legend, and I had no idea until we did some research that he was related or had like a legacy throughout the film. So I tried to, I found different numbers when I was trying to figure this out because there was like 95 or 92 between the three of them, but it's the most, whatever it is, they have the most nominations among an extended family. Um, And from what I've read, the numbers reach up to the nineties and I, I'm not going to count 90 nominations guys. Like (laughs) you can go ahead and check it. This is like what I'm trying to research and find out for your own personal use. But yeah, Alfred won nine Academy Awards nominated 45 times. So legend, very much a legend. Moving on to best original score that went to Eric Wolfgang Korngold for the adventures of Robin Hood. Uh, So Korngold, uh, this is a second Academy Award. Uh, in this category following the, his win in 1936 for Anthony Adverse. Best short subject cartoon goes to Ferdinand the Bull by Walt Disney Productions and RKO Radio. Another one. Another one for Walt Disney and Ferdinand the Bull. Yeah. And so uh, Walt Disney actually voiced Ferdinand's mother in the cartoon, which I did not know. So he just keeps on getting them. He got, he got like... He already got the, the seven little mini ones. You might as well just give him the one for Ferdinand at this yeah, point. Yeah, exactly. Best live action short subject to real went to Declaration of Independence from Warner Brothers. Uh, so it's one of the few films to win an Academy Award that was about the American Revolution. And if you go on the IMDb page for Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson gets a writing credit uh, for this film. Best live action short subject one real goes to Fred Zinneman for That Mothers Might Live by MGM. Now, Fred Zinneman would go on to direct the following best pictures. From Here to Eternity, 1953. A Man for All Seasons, 1966. And he would also direct High Noon, Oklahoma, and Julia. Best screenplay went to Pygmalion, to George Bernard Shaw, Ian Dalrymple, Cecil Lewis, and W.P. Lipscomb, based on the play by George Bernard Shaw. Uh, so this is the basis of the 1964 Best Picture winner, My Fair Lady, also uh, the musical. Uh, so Shaw's reaction to his award was, it's an insult for them to offer to me any honor, as if they had never heard of me before. And it's very likely they never have. They might as well send home, they might as well send some honor to George for being King of England, uh, which however, supposedly his friend Mary Pickford later saw uh, the award displayed at his home. Uh, so very interesting and We'll definitely talk about My Fair Lady, and we actually have talked about Pygmalion before in a previous episode, but I'm forgetting which year we talked about it. But You Can't Take It With You was nominated in this category, and um, I don't know if you've ever seen My Fair Lady before or really know much what it's about, um, but I love You Can't Take It With You more than I do uh, My Fair Lady slash Pygmalion. Yeah, I haven't seen it, so I can't say much. (laughs) Uh, Well, you will. But yeah, I mean... I don't know. I like. I know Riskin has won before in this category, so like maybe they are trying to because it is George Bernard Shaw. Like maybe they're trying to get that whole appeal to it. But uh, I mean, just the there are so many great lines in, and you can't take it with you. We didn't even talk about like the title line of "You can't take it with you" like that much of it. You know, being about Grandpa wanting, basically telling Kirby that you can't take all this money with you when you die, and just like that writing, it, it's so it's just so good. Yeah, yeah, and, and who knows? It could be just 
It can't because it's based on something because, you know, we have the winner here that was based on a play as well. So it's writing is always so hard to determine just because it's it seems just so like personal on what you like are affected by and touched by. So, I mean, obviously, this has like a long history of adaptations where it was adapted 20 years later into My Fair Lady. So there's definitely some appeal in this in this particular story. But, yeah, I think you can't dig it with you definitely deserves to be on this board or maybe be the best screenplay of the year best original story goes to eleanor griffin and dora shari for boys town this is griffin's only oscar win dora shari would go on to be lewis b mayer's replacement as the head of mgm after mayer would resign boys town was supposedly mayer's favorite mgm film that was made during this time while most of the film is original it is based on the real life Omaha, Nebraska town. So why is it winning best original story? <laughs> if it's not an original story, it makes no sense how they do this to us. Well, it's based on a town. Like, but it's like any it's, story could be based but on the town. It's based like off of like a pastor in the town and like this whole surround, this whole like idea of, I've never seen boys town. It, Spencer Tracy wins an Oscar for it. Like, I'm sure it's like a really good movie. Like Mickey Rourke, uh, not Mickey Rourke, Mickey Rooney. <laughs> wow. If Mickey Rourke was in this one, uh, he's quite old, but yeah, but yeah, I don't know. I, I just have such a problem with it winning best original story. Like this is where we need adapted and an original screenplay to. Yeah. We talked with. about this cause it seems like it's really just only focused on like plays or Broadway or yeah. like specific things that have already been written down. Like, not just because it's based on a true story, you know? Yeah. Best Supporting Actress went to Faye Banter for Jezebel as Aunt Belle Macy. Uh, so she's the first actress to be nominated in the lead and supporting categories in the same year. And this is Banter's only win. Um, so Spring Byington, who plays Penny Sycamore and You Can't Take It With You, is the lone actor uh, to be nominated for any acting category this year. Um, so first, uh, should Spring Byington have won for this category? Do you think she gave a good enough performance to deserve a Best Supporting Actress win, or was there kind of not enough? No, I definitely yeah. don't think there's enough. Like, no. I feel like she's barely in this movie. Like, I'm surprised she's even nominated. Right. Well, the Academy will does tend to give out actress awards to some only like one scene actresses. Yeah, which is a common that they thing. Thought, yeah. But I just find it very surprising that there's not more nominations. Like we said, we loved Lionel Barrymore. Like, how is he not nominated? How is James Stewart? How is Edward Arnold? How is Gene Arthur not nominated? There's like so many really great performances in this movie that isn't being recognized. And the fact that the only one is uh, Penny's character uh, by Spring Byington, it's a little weird. Um, but Billy Burke is also nominated in this category. And we've talked about Billy Burke in. Uh, previous two episodes or two episodes ago in the great Zigfield. So best supporting actor goes to Walter Brennan for Kentucky as Peter Goodwin. This is his second of three Oscar wins. Best actress went to Betty Davis for Jezebel as Julie Marston. Uh, so the Turner classic movie database states that the film was offered to Betty Davis as compensation after she had failed to win the part of Scarlett O'Hara in Gone with the Wind. And this is also Davis's second Academy Award win and her final win in this category, although she'll give some wonderful performances later on. But I want to talk about Gone with the Wind to kind of tease our next episode because you already have so many people vying to be a part of this. There was 
Uh, I know from the 1937 episode I was researching, there was stuff about Irving Thalberg kind of being early on in the uh, production of Gone with the Wind and, and figuring that out. So like the fact that it's so present and like people really wanted to be a part of it and, and, and be a part of its production is, is pretty interesting. Best actor goes to Spencer Tracy for Boys Town as Father Flanagan. This is Tracy's second back-to-back win Oscar wins, uh, a feat only accomplished by one other actor, Tom Hanks. When he accepted this Oscar, Tracy responded graciously by spending all of his acceptance speech talking about Father Flanagan, the character he portrayed. Quote, if you have seen him through me, then I thank you. Unquote. An overzealous MGM publicity representative announced that Tracy was donating his Oscar to Flanagan, who confirming without confirming it with Tracy. Tracy's response was, quote, I earned I earned the thing. I won it. End quote. The Academy hastily struck another inscription. Tracy kept a statue, and the boys town got one too. It reads, quote, to Father Flanagan, whose great humanity, kindly simplicity, and inspiring courage were strong enough to shine through my humble effort. Spencer Tracy. I find it interesting that there's only two people are two. Well, let's go over actors because that's what specifically the stat is going for. Is that only Spencer Tracy and Tom Hanks have won back to back best actor wins? I feel like that. I feel like that there happens other times, but I guess it really hasn't. So. Um, we well, love Tom Hanks here. Yeah, well, one, you have to be consistent enough as an actor, right, to not only give a good performance, but to consistently work. So, like, yeah. depending on the film you're working on, this could be three months, six months, or even longer in some cases. So, be able to fit two films and then not only fit two films, but also be good movies and have good performances as well to enough to win the Best Actor category. Yeah, that's, that's impressive. I think, for me, it makes sense that there's that little of, of winners. Best Director goes to Frank Capra for You Can't Take It With You. We spent a lot of time talking about Capra, but just to reiterate, this is his third best director win. He's the first person to do that. Uh, And it would be accomplished only by two other people, uh, John Ford, who would go on to win four total best best directors, and then uh, William Wyler won three as well. Uh, A quick note, Michael Curtis, uh, he's nominated twice uh, in this category uh, for this year with Angels of Dirty Faces and Four Daughters. And uh, Michael Curtis would go on to direct Casablanca. Yeah, so John, uh, you have seen, well, we both of us have seen uh, Capra's three best director wins. And I still, there's so many more Capra movies that I want to go watch and see being able to, uh, ha- having done this whole process and this whole project already, like there's so many more I want to go back to and watch to fully understand his filmography. But out of the three best director wins, which one do you think was the most masterful is how we'll phrase it. Masterful makes it way harder. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite is it happened one night just cause I think it's, but do you like that movie or because of the directing or cause it's a really, well, it's, I guess well, I like the, the movie yeah. the most. So I have to like kind of lean into that. I mean, I feel like you can't take it with you is, is definitely a, a bigger film when we talk about like exploring the world and, it probably hits harder when it comes to like themes and, and being a more impactful film. But I just think it, it happened one night is so freaking adorable and so just like charming and like instantly rewatchable. So, yeah, it, it definitely is. I, uh, there are some people in my life who I've been begging to watch Capra movies with. Um, <laughs> and, uh, 
and they will eventually. I know they will. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely think it happened one night. It's kind of his best out of the three wins. Um, but it's a wonderful life. I mean, man. I I don't like. Okay, I guess I get teary eyed. Yeah, I just like took that out of the conversation yeah. for me. Like I get teary eyed like from movies, but it's a wonderful life. I was I was crying. I was I was crying at the end of it, and I think that that really has to do with Capra's, um, that just his whole style and and his way of of filming things. And um, I just I love Frank Capra. I they, again like I don't I said at the beginning like I don't think we give enough due to him, and so. We spent a whole podcast talking about him, so there's not much more to say. But if you haven't seen Frank Capra movies, you should go out and watch them. But moving on to the Best Picture Award of the evening of the 11th Academy Awards. The nominees are Test Pilot, Pygmalion, Jezebel, Grand Illusion, Four Daughters, The Citadel, Boys Town, Alexander's Ragtime Band, The Adventures of Robin Hood, and... The winner of the 11th Academy Award Best Picture Award is You Can't Take It With You for Frank Capra for Columbia Productions. So just to throw some stats before we give our overall general feelings about the uh, about the film. So the film currently holds a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. The average Rotten Tomatoes rating by critics is a 7.51 uh, out of 10. Uh, it's 88% on audience score. Uh, for some reference, it happened one night is a 93 on the audience score percentage. And the audience average score rating for You Can't Take It With You is a 4.18. And on IMDb, it is a 7.9. And it, right now, it's the third highest ranked Best Picture winner on IMDb at a 7.9. It happened one night. It's the highest at an 8.1. And All Quiet on the Western Front is a solid 8. So, John, we've... And throwing out stats, throwing out numbers. What is your overall rating for You Can't Take It With You? I gave You Can't Take It With You in 80. And I really enjoyed this film. That's a pretty high rating for me. In fact, it's the second highest uh, under It Happened One Night and All Quiet on the Western Front, which both sit at an 85. And yeah, this, the reason why I kind of dropped it down a little bit lower than those films is because I found the the uh, kind of couple relationship with James Stewart to not go as deep as I would like it to. And, and it really kind of folds in on itself at the end while it wraps up the sweet family story and dynamic and really hits on the theme. I um, really just missed that aspect of it. And this is a really wonderful film. I think it's, it's really sweet and endearing. And like most of Capra's film, I think it's a great film to watch with, you know, your, your family and like, no matter what age of a family they are, I think you can watch any of Capra's films and everyone can have a good time and find a character that they kind of relate to. Yeah, certainly. And, uh, I gave, uh, you can't take it with you in 89. Uh, so why not that extra point, Ben? Why did you not just make it a 90? I didn't make it an A movie because I, some of the reasons why John didn't love it was kind of the reasons why, uh, I would want to take points off as well. I'm not saying that John didn't love it. If he loved it, but just what there are just some aspects to it, and some aspects for me as well. I did think that the pacing was a little too slow. I thought, yeah, it's great to have these like very long scenes, but then again, placing that whole idea of like, well, you're just adapting a play and then you're letting the actors act. I, there could be some more visual stimulating moments that Capper could have done, uh, but he did some other wonderful things, which is why it's still like a very high score. Uh, and 89 is a great score. It's a an amazing movie. 
Um, in no way am I saying it's a B movie, just in my own ratings, in my own head, I just gave it a B plus, um, which doesn't make it a B movie. It just, yeah. Yeah, I think you get what I mean. Uh, so our average scores right now, John, you are a 62.27, so 62.3 average out of the 11 movies, and I am a 69. Yeah. <laughs> so, John Boy. Is You Can't Take It With You worthy of the Best Picture Award of 1938? Yes. Yes, I totally think it is. <laughs> yes, right. I, I definitely agree, too. Um, I think we've, we've, I think we really hammered home, home like why we liked it more than why we didn't. Um, didn't see many of the other movies at all from this year, which is kind of like the whole point of this podcast. But compared to other Best Picture winners... This is a lot of fun. It's a it's a lot of especially coming after the life of Emil Zola, which is just fucking kill me fest. Uh, you can't take it with you. It's all about fun and family and just having a really good time. And it and it actually sets up a pretty much like a decade's worth of best picture winners that are just not only just solid but like fucking great. Yeah, without a doubt. And like I was saying just a minute ago about Capra being for everyone, and we talk a lot about how he kind of represents uh, America in a lot of ways or what people kind of expect or kind of see America as in the 30s and, and 40s, but I think it goes way beyond that. You know, if you're a foreign listener here, I think Capra is not just a great, like, interpretation of that moment of America, but also just a great interpretation of uh, family life and, and, you know, finding the inner truth of what makes you happy and... You know, what's what's more beautiful and compelling than that? You know, finding your inner truth and, and what life is all about, I think, is what Capra was trying to find and look for in his film. So definitely take a listen. Yeah, 100 percent. And um, I again, like we've talked about it, but for an, immig- an Italian immigrant to come to America to fight in both world wars, to really exemplify like what it means to be an American. And like I know, like today, that that can be a very controversial idea and statement, but um, it's still, he, he did present a lot of really good things. And despite maybe his political backgrounds, his film still told a lot of great things and, and proposed a lot of great ideas and theories and, and just wonderfulness. And there's something great. There's something really great about watching a bunch of people play Polly Wally doodle at the end of a film. And that's what Capra just wants is singing and dancing and the coming of togetherness, uh, for all people. So John, any final thoughts before we wrap up the 11th episode of worthy? Nope, I think I hit the nail on the head. <laughs> yeah, I, I think we did too. Uh, thank you for listening. I'm Ben. And I'm John. And, and this, this is Worthy. Well, this would be a fine country if we all spent our time in the zoo and, and played the harmonica. Well, you used to play one yourself. Tony said so. Maybe you ought to take it up again. Maybe it would stop you trying to be so desperate about making more money than you can ever use. You can't take it with you, Mr. Kirby. So what good is it? As near as I can see, the only thing you can take with you is the love of your friends. Oh, why don't you go out and get yourself a pulpit somewhere? (laughs) Thanks for listening to Worthy, the breakdown of every Best Picture winner from past to present. You can listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Check us out on Instagram at Worthy Podcast, on Twitter at Worthy Pod, and on Facebook at Worthy Podcast. Any inquiries can be submitted to worthysubmissions at gmail.com. Again, that's worthysubmissions at gmail.com.